And we are live, as we say. So, as we say, let's get this going. Welcome on to Moxie with F.P. Wellman. Let's play some music and then we'll talk. Welcome. Technology issues, as always. I, I think anybody ever listens to the show knows I do this all the time, Glenn, so bear with me. As, uh, as those know, listen to us normally, I'm your host, Fred Wellman. I'm glad to have you all here. Uh, man, other than technology, it's also been a fascinating week in our democracy and the fight to save it. You know, from the deep examination of the stunning revelations that are going on up there in the January 6th hearings, to, uh, I think, the surprise introduction and rapid passage of the Senate's Bipartisan Safer Communities Act last night. On top of that, we saw truly a, a host of terrible Trump-endorsed or MAGA-adjacent candidates lose their elections yesterday in primaries across the country, which was a joy to see. So, you know, I'm really excited to have our guest today uh, help us sort all this out, offer his unique perspective, and let's just kind of get right to it, if you will. Glenn, it's glad to have you. You know, one of the great joys of having this show is that I get the excuse to talk to people I've admired for ages. And uh, Glenn Kirshner is one of those guys. Glenn has probably... Pretty well known to you from his regular appearances as an MSNBC and NBC as a legal analyst. Comes in with 30 years of experience as a federal prosecutor. You don't look that old, Glenn. Homicide prosecutor and an Army judge advocate general, fellow Army vet. Always makes me happy. Glenn hosts his own YouTube channel called Justice Matters as well as an accompanying podcast by the same name. Top of all that, he teaches uh, criminal law at George Washington University. Obviously, you're a bit of an underachiever. We're all welcome, welcome, welcome to have having on the pod here, man. So, you know, I finally had a chance to meet Glenn last week in D.C., so it's a prism ha- privilege to have him on the show. Glenn, thanks for joining me. In spite of our technology challenges, it's great to have you on the show. Hey, Fred, I'm pleased to be with you. And, and I will say, I thought when I retired from the Department of Justice in 2018, things might slow down a little. Turns out that's that's not exactly the case. No, I don't think it has at all for you. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it's uh, it is uh, it's a crazy time. Right. I mean, and and and, you know, we're facing it head on in a lot of ways. I think your, your voice has been a unique one. I love listening to you talk. You know, the biggest thing we're talking about, you know, we've had four hearings that are uh, we're four hearings that is process of uh, the January 6th public hearings that, you know, I, I think it's clear a choice has been made to use the hearings and the committee to, I, I think, essentially prosecute Trump in many ways, as opposed to, like, just investigating the facts around January 6th. I mean, one, is that how you see them setting this up? And, and how do you think it's going? So um, it does look a lot like a presentation in a criminal trial. And, and that is not a coincidence because... The investigative team for the January 6th Select Committee consists of almost exclusively former federal prosecutors that come, you know, that, that bring expertise in areas of uh, gang prosecution, RICO prosecution, public corruption prosecution, and violent crime prosecution. The right. head, uh, the chief investigative officer, is Tim Heafy, who uh, Tim and I started together at the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office and handled uh, the same series of RICO cases together, the largest RICO pre- prosecution ever brought in the, in the courts of D.C. I wow. am intimately familiar with his work and as good a prosecutor as I'd like to think I was. He's probably one of the best RICO prosecutors 
certainly the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office, the largest U.S. Attorney's Office ever saw, and perhaps that the Department of Justice ever saw. He is structuring this investigation, I can see from afar, from the publicly reported evidence and from the public hearings. He's structuring it like a RICO investigation. Um, And so what we see playing out in these public hearings really looks very much like a, a criminal trial would look. And I, I know the Department of Justice is running its own investigation. I don't know if it is now feeling like it's playing catch up because of mm-hmm. all of the uh, evidence that is being disclosed in these public hearings. And it is dramatic and damning of yeah. what Trump and his criminal associates were doing and frankly continue to do to our nation. So, yeah, I, I have been riveted. I've been uh, impressed with the way they're structuring it. It's nice not to have any yammerers on the panel who, you know, would spend their five minutes trying to tear down what thoughtful patriots are trying to build up. So, yeah, yeah I, I think it's going well. You know, it's interesting, too. They said today that uh, they're going to extend it, right? They're going to do more hearings because they've had an absolute flood of new evidence and new witnesses. And, you know, my first thought was, Going back to that first question about this being a prosecution, I can't help but wonder if there's people watching this who have sort of stood by the sidelines and realize there's a there's a case being made that there are possible criminal charges being built, and perhaps it's best to get ahead of that and participate. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I mean, uh, it, it's yeah. not necessarily. Some people are like, oh, people are getting their courage. Like, oh, I think people are getting reality. I mean, what do you think? I do. I think. Um This will probably result in more witnesses being added to uh, to the lineup. Um, You know, listen, people people have a choice to make. You know, if you're a John Eastman treasonous lawyer that he is, you're either going to get on the government train, the prosecution train, the J6 train, or you're going to get run over by the prosecution train. Thus far, it looks like Eastman has, you know, made his choice. He's sticking with his criminal boss, Donald Trump. And but, you know, he is he going to, you know, pull a John Dean? Is somebody else going to pull a John Dean? Let's hope somebody does. Um, but right now, it does seem like all of Trump's criminal associates, the Bannons, the Flynn's, the Rudy's, um, the John Eastman's are holding fast and they will go down. They absolutely right. will go down if they continue on that path. Right. And, and, I, and I think that's that's refreshing to hear because it does, it, you know, I think, I mean, for me too, you know, one of the themes I've been hearing yesterday, I think the big theme we heard a lot was that the system held, right? That our democratic institutions worked, they prevented disastrous results. Um, you know, we talked about criminal intent. I, I fear though that the GOP has spent their time now making sure the institutions, the guardrails and those very laws could be changed for 2024, right? So they don't, they don't actually have to break the rules to get what they, they want. I mean, Having said that, you know, most of the stuff that was done this time was was breaking laws. Should we be worried that this movement is actually trying to make sure they don't have to break the law next time? Yeah. So um, if you break the law uh, and you're not held accountable, you're going to do right. it again. And maybe you're even going to try to give yourself some cover by right. changing the law to allow what would otherwise have been criminal conduct. So, um, you know, yes, the, the institutions held. But the institutions are badly damaged and battered and bruised, and they could still crumble. And the Mm -hmm. only way to shore them up is to hold accountable the folks who battered and bruised them in the first instance. This is not rocket science. This is not prosecutorial overreach. 
You know, this is just justice. If you do not hold Donald Trump accountable for his crimes against the United States, and there are many, we could talk about, you know, all of the crimes that I believe are supported by the evidence for the next several hours. If you don't hold him accountable, then you know the 2024 nominee, Republican nominee, will do everything Donald Trump just did and then some. And the shadow running mate for that nominee will be the Department of Justice, because you can point to the Department of Justice and say, well, they didn't prosecute Donald Trump for any of what he did. Therefore, what Mm -hmm. he did was not criminal. And I get to do it in, you know, my quest for the presidency in 2024. We cannot survive another go round like we've just been through. Right. I mean, it's, it's, I have a friend who's a sociologist and he said, you know, there's, there's a thing they call penetration exercises in sociology. And it's where you penetrate a norm or what's considered a norm of society and then, and, 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 and penetrate and break it, right? For example, using the White House, the Republican National Convention, right? Uh, but what the theory, so the thing they learn in sociology is that if, if that, if that penetration is not corrected, in other words, pushed back, and the rules harden to ensure that it can't be penetrated again, that new thing becomes the norm, right? And so one of the things I feared, and you talked about on the prosecution side, but also as, as you know, how much of our democracy is based on or uh, honoring norms and traditions, right? Yeah. Well, what we've seen is an, or, uh, an administration and allies and co-conspirators who don't give a damn about norms and traditions, and they've blown right through it. And we're not seeing, if we don't correct it, right, if we don't cut off that penetration, like battle the bulge, then that would become the new norm, right? Uh, I think, well, I think that's what Well, and norms and traditions, norms and traditions that used to make sense don't necessarily make sense in today's environment. I mean, right. in the 1800s, there were norms and traditions that led us to treat fellow human beings pretty, pretty horrifically. (laughs) And there are norms and traditions in place at the Department of Justice that do not apply in today's environment. I'll give you an example. You know, and and you know about this, but there is a a, basically a policy. It's it's a norm. It's a tradition uh, that the Department of Justice and the FBI, which is the sort of main law enforcement arm of the Department of Justice, tries to take no overt law enforcement action within 60 days of an election that could be perceived as partisan or could interfere in the upcoming election. That's a lovely little norm and tradition. But, you know, (laughs) that norm and tradition was sort of born in a time when we didn't have insurrectionists running for office. We now have insurrectionists in Congress running for re-election. The last thing a civilized, thoughtful government should do is give them a 60-day election holiday, you know, suspend all law enforcement activity against them, and give them an opportunity to become more firmly entrenched in our government, in Congress, so they can continue to try to destroy our democracy from the inside. Please don't point to that norm and tradition as something that must be honored in a time of de facto war against our democracy. It is foolish. Right. That's exactly it. And, and, and that's what scares me is if you, if you pick me, you know, what keeps me up at night is that, one, you and I both know the coup is not done. We, we know John Eastman's going around the country still trying to convince people his way. Um, we know that the, there's an underlying violence. And, and, and 
and and that's the thing that I, I think about a lot too. Is I mean, the thing I heard about a lot, the theme I heard at the theme Tuesday for me, and maybe it was the secondary theme that jumped out at me as well as um, you know, this was focused on the state level stuff, right? But what jumped out at me as well was the violent undercurrent to all of this. Every witness had stories of threats to their lives, horrible attacks on family members. You know, I think I think uh, you know Rusty Bauer's daughter was dying, right? Uh, uh, Raffensperger's, uh, the widow of his son was 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 uh, um, um, Shay's grandmother's house was invaded. They they had their family, they're doxing their personal information and a host of episodes. I think that's what worries me. I mean, what can we do to stop this? And and why is that going back there? Why is law for law enforcement seemingly failing those who step forward like that? It doesn't feel like there's been any law enforcement action against any of the. We didn't hear a single thing about any uh, uh, any price paid for those who did these things to these these witnesses. And I have to tell you, that made me sick to my stomach as a former career prosecutor, specifically Shea Moss's testimony. Right. What she what she shared with us about what happened to her and her mother and her grandmother. She and her mother, I believe, were both election workers in right. Georgia. Just and you know what? I was moved to tears. You know, I'm not too proud yeah. to admit it. Um, when she said, look, I, I I have been an election worker for years because I love helping folks exercise their right to vote, especially old folks who kind of need some help through the process. They're not all that computer savvy. And I can identify with that. And I mean, (laughs) this is the backbone of America and of American democracy and of our election systems. And I'll tell you, my, my blood pressure is rising because as much as I was angered by what happened to uh, Arizona House Speaker Rusty Bowers and what happened to Secretary of State in Georgia Brad Raffensperger and their families. Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani lied, I mean, through their teeth, claiming yep. and, and just kind of breaking it down to its essence that Shea Moss is stuffing ballot boxes criminally for Joe Biden. Yep. And, and then he weaponized his base by putting their names in the public square And just as sure as he told the Proud Boys to stand by and then deployed them on January 6th, he deployed his base against the Shea Mosses of the world. And we saw her say, my life was turned upside. I can't even go to the grocery store with my mother now for fear she will call out my name. And where is the accountability for Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani for those crimes endangering the lives of election workers. We did hear something about the FBI went down and said, well, you know, you're, you should probably get out of your house for a couple of months be- because you're in danger. And I'm not right. criticizing the FBI. I worked with them for decades and I respect them. But if that's all they did, I'm sorry. When there's a threat to a Supreme Court justice, all of the levers of government oh, yeah. leap into action to protect them in real time. And you're, you're letting the, 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 uh, the hardworking election volunteers of our nation hang out to dry. You're letting Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani lie about them and endanger their lives. This is what got, what's got me really wrapped around the axle right now, because yep. I, I, I almost hesitate to say this, but when law enforcement hesitates, people get hurt. Yep. And, and right now it seems like DOJ has hesitated for a year and a half to do anything to make right what was done to the Shea Mosses of this sad chapter in American history. That is dead wrong. You know, yep. I, I listen, Fred, every day 
I try to balance my 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 need to exercise patience and give DOJ all the time they need to build the perfect case with my extreme frustration that our democracy hangs in the balance, as Judge Ludwig said, that Trump and his supporters are a clear and present danger to our democracy. And damn it, something has to be done. You can't afford to build the perfect case when you are in a de facto war for our democracy. Yep. And I, and you nailed it, too. It's not just and I love the twist, too, is it's. It's not actually just a war for our democracy. I think for you and I, I think we're used to getting the little death threats and the, and, 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 and the shitty stuff said about us online. But we're actually talking about lives being at risk, right? It's not just our democracy. People's lives are actually being threatened. I mean, and it's not a joke. I mean, you, again, people in power, like, you know, Adam Kinzinger got a note and it was horrible, but they've already said that they've stepped up security for them. Okay. They have. The people in power have the power to protect themselves. But uh, like you said, a Shea Moss and a Lady Ruby, they're just average Americans. And, and you're right. I think, I think that was what, and I'll, I'll go back, you know, the, you know, the entire episode around the suitcase balance, right? It, it, the suitcases of balance is incredibly telling, right? And, and I, I was going to say, it's funny, we already went to it, but I got two things out of that. One, what we just talked about, the, the way that this, this, this impacted the, the ladies and others. But the other part, I thought, I thought it was a very brilliant way of telling, I mean, they've had, you remember it. I mean, I, I call it a fire hose of bullshit, right? There was, there was so much bullshit that came out of the Trump campaign and, and their allies after the election from, you know, in Phil, we forget about Philadelphia. I mean, hell, what veterans for Trump guy showed up with guns in Philadelphia and he's under trial for that. You've got the, but I, and, and the, the committee has had to parse through thousands and, and just acres of evidence. And I thought it was a very, as a storyteller, because my job, you're a lawyer, and that's a storyteller too, by the way, but my job has always been a storyteller. I, I was, I first got into this business as a communicator, thanks to General David Petraeus, and I made an anchor on TV cry one day, and so General Petraeus said I should be a public affairs officer. <laughs> and so from the story, from the storytelling aspect of making their case, to just focus exclusively on the Georgia piece of the puzzle, the, the, the suitcase of votes, right? To tell that, I thought it was a very smart storytelling approach to show the larger case, and they did. They they showed one how this lie was perpetuated by Johnny, and then they showed very carefully, which I love the way they cleared the panel off and just had Shea Moss speak alone. Yeah. They showed the impact of that lie. Um, you know, I, I, I do you think? I mean, it seems like you prosecuted cases. Is this a way to prosecute a case with this much evidence? It feels like you could get bogged down in the fire hose of bullshit, and a jury will will reject it because it's just too much. Does that make sense? Or am I crazy? Yeah. So th this really was a, an adept trial presentation that we were watching. And um, one of the most difficult tactical calls for a prosecutor to make, if, if I'm grand jurying a case and I may put in 100 witnesses before the grand jury in the run of the mill case, as I move toward trial, I, I need to figure out my witness list. And if I've grand juried 100 witnesses, I may choose to prove my case with 15 of them. Right. Because the last thing you want to do is over try your case. Um, and I've okay. seen prosecutors do it. Defense attorneys don't often do it because all they do is try to poke holes. And please, when I say all they do, don't anybody who's listening take that as a criticism. <laughs> I have I have That's such high regard, respect and admiration for my friends who practiced on the other side of the bar. Um, right. And they you know, they are 
one of the reasons that we continue to have a democracy, because, you know, my job as a prosecutor, I know I'm getting sidetracked, but now I'm up okay. on my high horse, so I can't get, I'll get up there. Yeah, you're um, good. We're, we're not so, on video. You're you know, good. The job of a prosecutor <laughs> is relatively easy compared to the job of a defense attorney. It, it's grueling. You know, I, I would work 12 hours a day and I made damn sure that the American people got their tax dollars worth out of me. And I loved, loved what I did for 30 years. But, you know, I, I had to present evidence to try to persuade a jury uh, of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt on the charges that the grand jury indicted. You know, a defense attorney has this sort of dual obligation. The first is to the client. First and foremost, you have to zealously represent your client. And but the second is you have to keep the government in check. You need to make sure the police officers didn't overstep their bounds or violate your client's rights. You have to make sure that the prosecution isn't, you know, engaged in prosecutorial overreach or worse. They're, you know, not acting ethically by, for example, giving over all of the evidence that the the rules and the law and the Constitution require us to give over. Most importantly, what's called Brady evidence, which is exculpatory evidence that could help show the defendant is not guilty. So, I mean, there is this dual responsibility, you know, representing your client, but keeping the government in check, trying to, you know, be a check and a balance against governmental abuse and overreach. That's an enormous responsibility for defense attorneys. So, you know, my my hat's off to them. But going back to my original point, you know, defense attorneys don't overtry cases because all they generally have to do is try to poke holes in the government's evidence and then present a select witness or two or a handful to try to counter and knock down the, the evidence that the government chose to introduce. But I would have to dramatically sort of uh, pare down my witness list of everybody that I talked to during my grand jury investigation to decide, OK, how can I present it so that it's compelling, so that it's engaging, so that I don't overstay my welcome? I need to I need to prove each element of each charged offense beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, but I don't want to overstay my welcome. And that is it precisely, Fred, what I see the J6 committee doing. It, it really looks like an expertly presented criminal prosecution. Right. And that's that's what I'm walking away with. It's, and I love the way it goes from the the act and then they tie it all together. And I, I, I mean, I learned stuff. Right. And that's that's unique because I, I know should have a pack dedicated to January 6th, <laughs> right? I've, I've, I've parsed through it all. You, you, you do this for a living. You're an analyst, right? And honestly, I learned so much yesterday from the Raffensburgers talking and, and, and Gabe Sterling, the piece with the suitcases, all the way through to where Lady Ruby um, had to flee her house, right? And, and those are parts of the story I'm not sure. I think they did a great play, and, and that was all done in a tight, for what, an hour? I mean, it, it's, it's kind of remarkable um, how they're doing this. And, and I think it, it gives me, I don't know, I've been accused of having optimism lately. I don't know if I'll be able to maintain it, but, <laughs> you know, but it does give me faith that at least um, we understand the significance of it and they're putting it in a way that the average person can listen to. But, you know, another significant piece of the puzzle that finally appeared was the involvement of congressional leaders and, and of yeah. course, Ronald McDaniel in the narrative, right? You know, I've noticed that the mention of members of Congress have been 
I don't know if you know, noticeably absent since that first hearing with the mention of Scott Perry and the, and the sidebar sort of member that members requested pardons, right? So yeah, it, that, it and almost, that's for one of one of that's for one of two reasons. Either okay. they're kind of building to a crescendo where we begin to hear about the dirty deeds of members of Congress, many of whom apparently asked for pardons, which is. Yep. Uh, that is incriminating evidence like like manna from heaven for prosecutors, right. because, right. you know, it, if, if you get a, a defendant who confesses to their crimes, um, you know, they're arrested, they're Mirandized, they waive their Miranda rights and agree to be interviewed, they're interrogated and they end up confessing. What's the first thing a defense attorney is going to claim in in trial? that their confession was coerced. It's not reliable and therefore it should not be admitted into evidence. And if it is, it shouldn't be credited by the jury. Well, when you're asking for a pardon, there's no coercion anywhere near that. That is the requester announcing to the world. Once that information seeps out into the public square, I know in my heart and my mind, I committed crimes and the only way I can get away with them is if I get a presidential pardon. That is, like I say, incriminating manna from heaven, quite frankly. So they're either building to that crescendo or they're deciding that's not necessarily what we want to focus on. We want to focus on Trump and his inner circle of co-conspirators like Rudy and Bannon and um, uh, Eastman and uh, Jeffrey Clark, who is a special case. I hope we get to talk about him Um, and and leave all of the details with respect to the possible crimes of members of Congress. Leave that to the Department of Justice. I'm not quite sure which way they're trending right now. Yeah, I, I I tell you my gut, and I'm not a prosecutor. Is I think I think they're just <laughs> I think they're saving it to the end. I mean, because you know I've noticed Leafs as again I, I approach all this as a storyteller. We've seen these chunks, right? It was the opening shot. It was the focus on Vice President Pence and the pressure on him. Then it was the focus on the states, right? Um, and then I think this next one is Department of Justice. It feels like they're taking pieces of the puzzle and plugging them into a narrative. And and keep in mind, we haven't even gotten to the shooting of Ashley Babbitt, right? We haven't gotten that are really ugly stuff that occurred on the day of. Um, but for me, my perspective has been the, the, the acts of Congress, the conspiracy with Hawley and Cruz and John Kennedy on the Senate side and others, um, with, I mean, the fact we had Margie Tara Green, who, who shot a video of herself coming out of a booth at the White House saying, just had a great planning meeting for our plans for January 6th. And you know, Ron Johnson, it, 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 what we just learned about Ron him. Johnson, right, trying to pass fake electors. So, so we do have... I, I smell the, the 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 edges, if you will, of you know criminal conspiracy participation by members of Congress. That's that's hard to resist. I mean, again, the, the whole point was to kick the generate kick the electoral college results back to the states for you know it's to, for allow these these state legislators they've been pressuring to, to provide stuff. So I don't know. I, I guess my gut tells me that in the storytelling arc. Um, they're going to say that to the end, and it's going to be it's going to be pretty powerful. But, yeah, but then I mean, that, let's does, be honest, does, that tends it, to dilute the, right. the the focus and the yeah. power of the incriminating evidence with respect to Donald Trump's crimes. Yeah, so I, I don't know. I could be that's a good point. Persuaded tactically that either way is an appropriate way to proceed. 
It's a good point, though, because we have seen a focus on Trump's crimes and, and his immediate co- circle. So that, well, you know, and these things I'll defer to somebody who's done it. So, you know, one twist also I think we need to think about is that after all we heard from Arizona Speaker of the House, Rusty Bowers, and this very powerful testimony where he choked up, talk about his dedication to the Constitution and the laws of the kind. But, you know, it does come out afterwards that Rusty, Rusty also says that if Trump was the nominee, that he'd vote for him. So, you know, where's the disconnect, do you think? I mean, you know, where's the disconnect between an understanding that this man pressured you to break the law and yet you're still going to remain loyal? That That's tribalism. You know, that's why yeah. people, you know, continue to root for perennial losers like the Washington commanders, uh, you know, when they were, were when they were renamed, I, I'm in, I'm right outside of DC and I actually grew up on the New York giants. My pop oh, was a go. high school football coach. We didn't do politics growing up and I still don't do politics. People might not believe that, but uh, I was never a political guy. I uh, voted for Republicans and Democrats and independents over the course of my life because I only really cared about the character of the person because you could have somebody who is perfectly aligned with your ideology and if they're not trustworthy then you're not then it doesn't matter then there's just no point in voting for them but anyway I think it goes goes back to to tribalism why do you root for a, a, a you know a losing team for 20 years because that's your team and you identify with that team so it makes no sense to me, that these Republican witnesses, and I'm very heartened that they are proving Trump's crimes with nearly exclusively Republican voices, I think that tends to blunt the force of any criticism that this is a partisan witch hunt. But, you know, you just must be so um, entrenched in your tribe, the Republican tribe, that regardless of who is at the top of the ticket, you have to vote for them because it's your tribe. That that makes no intellectual sense to me. It makes a little bit of emotional sense because some people can't walk away from, you know, their losing team. Right. And also it, it makes me think that's, again, something I said earlier uh, and going back to it because it is stuck in my brain and I think it's the ADHD, but it, in many ways it, it seems they didn't mind him staying in power, right? They just didn't like having to break the law to do it. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Or, or the sense of, you know, being pressured to break the law to do it. And, and it goes back to what I said earlier that, that, I mean, unless, I mean, Rusty Bauer's record in, in Arizona, he, he's been a big fan of changing the laws, restricting voting access, you know, disenfranchising voters, kicking people out. I mean, the same thing with Brad Raffensperger. Brad Raffensperger yes. has been, you know, is known in Georgia for, he's the guy that cleared out the voter rolls and kicked several hundred thousand people off the rolls with, you know, the, these aren't men who have been dedicated their lives to voting rights, if you will. Um, but it, I think it, it they does, either, let me, let me, I think they either fool themselves into believing in the righteousness of their their cause and of right. that legislation. Um, I, I, you know, I, I don't know. I, yeah. I, I hate to demonize them all and, and say, sure. you know what, they're all engaged in these sort of governing decisions born of evil in their heart. I, I don't think. I listen, I'm not trying to give them cover. But yeah. I, I think, you know, if, if you listen to their explanation for why these legislative choices make sense to them, it doesn't make sense to me. I like to enfranchise, not disenfranchise people. But right. I, I don't think it's all born of evil in their heart. Maybe I'm giving them too much credit. Oh, I don't think that's unfair. I really don't. I mean, and, and one of the things I've been saying quite a bit is that, and I say this with my candidates that I work with, is that, look, the, 
we we should not default to evil or hatred or you know, on on the part of our counterparts. Now, I mean, there was a day. Remember back in the day when I first went into politics, it was it was my opponent. <laughs> you know, remember those good old days where my 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 gracious opponent, my honorable opponent. Now it's like yeah. I want to murder. You know, my friend uh, across do, the aisle. How about that? right? My friend across the aisle. How, those about good a John, old days. how about a John McCain moment? No, ma'am. Yeah. No, ma'am. He's not. You know, come on. He's that, not. That, a, yeah, he's not. I, I long for that, and that's why you know as much as I can disagree with the policy choices yes. of a Rusty Bowers or a Brad Raffensperger, just to have them stand up and say, the Constitution means something to me. The rule of law means something to me. I wish like hell, Fred, we could get back to Republicans who followed the lead of the Cheneys and the Kinzingers and said, listen, we'll fight tooth and nail over policy you know, uh, uh, preferences and priorities. But you know, it's our constitution and our democracy. And first and foremost, we need to fight to save that. And then let's go back to some kind of a civil battle over policy. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. You know, it's, it is incredibly frustrating. Now on that note, I mean, again, the, going back to the correction of all this, right? So do you think, I mean, as we get near the end here, do you, do you think, should we be optimistic that any of this is going to lead to justice? Is, is there going to be a prosecution of Trump as conspirators? I mean, and, and it will be, it will be federal or I, I read an article the other day so that George is probably our best chance. There's more likely a, a chance that he'll find himself in deeper legal trouble because of his Georgia actions than anything else at the federal level. But, you know, what's your take? Well, it, it, should we be optimistic that any of this is going to lead to some sort of a prosecution? Yeah, I'm optimistic that there will be indictments, conspiracy indictments. Um, I have been saying for a very long time that it has taken far too long to get to this point, And nobody knows whether Georgia will go first or DOJ will go first. Um, what I will say is the evidence that Donald Trump violated as many as a dozen, if you read an excellent deep dive by the Brookings Institution, as many as a dozen um, crimes under the laws of Georgia, misdemeanors and felonies alike, like select, uh, soliciting election fraud. You know, yeah. all his crimes are caught on audio tape, and there is right. no fair and impartial jury in the world, in my opinion, that would fail to convict him. You know, I ha I tried RICO cases with wiretap evidence, and I would call that a just press play trial. I pressed yeah. play, I turned to the jury, they got to hear the the defendant sitting across the courtroom talking about the crimes they were intending to commit, they were in the process of committing, or they had committed, and then I would press stop. Ladies and gentlemen, you know, it might be a good time for you to retire to deliberate and vote guilty. Um, <laughs> so so the, the evidence is so overwhelming of Donald Trump's criminal conduct in Georgia that, you know, how could Georgia not prosecute him? But then let's turn, let's turn to the federal. You know, the, the Department of Justice has nowhere to go. Um, and I have said, you know, my whole life inside of DOJ for decades, you know, leads me to to share that federal prosecutors, in my experience, take too long to bring cases. They want to investigate cases to perfection in the grand jury. If cases are not perfect, they will often kick those cases to the states, because when you when you violate federal law, you almost always violate state law. And we have we in the federal government have the luxury of saying, well, we, you know, they, we think there's some deficiency in the proof. So let's just kick this one to the states. Um, and, you know, that that is just not the way law enforcement should be done, in my opinion. But DOJ right. will have nowhere to go. 
I believe, at the conclusion of these public hearings, because we, the people sitting as the jury watching these public hearings, have, have seen and will continue to see with our own eyes evidence that easily satisfies proof beyond a reasonable doubt, the standard to convict someone in a criminal trial. And DOJ won if it wants to preserve our democracy and deter future criminal presidents or aspiring dictators from doing what Donald Trump has just done, they will have to indict. And two, if they want to retain any legitimacy as uh, as an institution of government, they have to try Donald Trump and his co-conspirators for their crimes, win, lose or draw. I believe they would win because I think the evidence is mountainous. I will say I rarely have the kind of evidence of crime or of criminal intent that I have seen even in the public reporting against Donald Trump. So I would bet a buck. I'm not a high roller. That's my betting limit. I would bet a buck <laughs> that we will see uh, indictments of Donald Trump and his co-conspirators coming out of the Department of Justice. Well, I, I, I hope and I pray. And I'm not, not much of a prayer man, to be honest with you, but I, I do. I, I feel very strongly that we really have no choice. I mean, there's there's talk about violence because of it, his supporters going. We certainly do see the threats of it amongst the, the militias and the right wing types. But but in the end, we can't we can't allow fear to dominate what has to be. We we, we has to be done. We we have to have justice. We can't let crimes of this nature to go unpunished. I mean, I can't imagine any country in the world having an attempted coup or insurrection and simply moving on, right? Because <laughs> it's yeah. too hard, and and we we will never be the beacon of freedom and the beacon of democracy ever again if. If we allow such crimes to go undone. I, so, you know, next up, uh, I believe on Thursday is the examination, the efforts to pressure the Department of Justice. Um, that's certainly in your lane, in your world. And I'm sure you've talked to folks on that side of things. You know, what should we expect out of this next hearing on Thursday? Will there be as much drama as we've seen or, or, or what's your take on things coming up? Yeah, I do think there will be drama and I think there will be powerful evidence of Donald Trump's attempts to weaponize corrupt the Department of Justice. I mean, he had some success by installing Bill Barr, who who really did do Donald Trump's uh, dirty bidding, you know, use the Department of Justice to reward his criminal associates like you know, Mike Flynn and Roger Stone and uh, punish his perceived enemies like uh, Andy McCabe and Michael Cohen. Um, so I, I think it's going to be um, conclusive evidence of Donald Trump's corrupt intent. And people are so obsessed with criminal intent. And yet it is not that hard to prove. Take it from somebody who did it for 30 years with a defendant, never once saying, by the way, I'm engaging in a criminal act and my intent is corrupt in case anybody wants to just document that for my future. I told him to be peaceful. I said the word peaceful. Not, yeah, I said right. peaceful. Not, that's <laughs> this works in real life. But here's right. what we're going to get, Fred, because we've, it's already been previewed in, in the press. You know, we're going to get a conversation between Donald Trump and high DOJ officials like Jeffrey Rosen and Richard Donahue. And they, you know, communicated in no uncertain terms that there was no election fraud undermining Joe Biden's win. And Donald Trump said, and this was reflected in Donahue's notes, and we're going to hear him testify about it. I don't care. Just say there was fraud, say it was rigged and leave the rest to me and my Republican allies in Congress. That is conclusive definitive proof of Donald Trump's corrupt intent. Not that we didn't already have a thousand points of light, circumstantial right. evidence 
of Donald Trump's corrupt intent. But, you know, that's like, you know, done. Game over. Right. right. Are you saying it? It's a, it's just quite saying it out loud. And what yes. what kind of what is the law that applies? Is that I mean that trying to trying to use his officials to to knowingly incite them to break the law, knowingly break the law. Um, the idea I I think something similar came up when Eastman said just do it and, and let the courts deal with it. Right? right. Is that so, incitement? What is that? What is the term I should be looking well, for? I mean, it can be anything from criminally coercing political activity. It was certainly okay. Recruiting these high DOJ officials to become members of his conspiracy to defraud or commit offenses against the United States, what we call a 371 conspiracy. A federal judge has already ruled by a preponderance of the evidence that Donald Trump and John Eastman together committed that very federal felony, conspiracy to defraud the United States and a second federal felony obstructing official proceedings, that being the certification of Joe Biden's win. So and, and here's what I love, because like you were you were saying, Fred, about how they're doing such a marvelous job telling the story. Yeah, they you know, he tried to corrupt the, the new leadership of the Department of Justice at the very end of his term, Jeffrey Rose and Je- uh, uh, Richard Donahue and yep. and Jeffrey Clark. And Jeffrey Clark took him up on it. Jeffrey Clark said, hey, boss. I'm your man. I'm your co-conspirator. I'm in. Make me make me acting attorney general. Right. And what did what did Jeffrey Clark do? He went back to the Department of Justice and he did did a little something we prosecutors call an overt act in furtherance of the conspiracy. It's a fancy term to say once a conspiracy forms, which is just an agreement to commit crime between two or more people. One of the co-conspirators has to take one step toward the commission of the substantive crime, what we call an overt act. Jeffrey Clark went back to the Department of Justice and drafted a letter to Georgia state election officials saying, oh, fellas, we found some real evidence of crime in the Georgia election that we're going to be investigating. So here's what I suggest you do. This is what your what the federal Department of Justice is telling you to do. Get a whole bunch of fake electors. I'm obviously tell you, anybody can read the letter for themselves. Yep. Get a bunch of fake electors, a fake slate of electors, get them appointed. And then, you know, they basically gave them a roadmap to deny Joe Biden his rightful win and install Donald Trump corruptly for a second term. The fact that he took Donald Trump up on the invitation to join the conspiracy and went out and then did some acts toward the commission of the crime. It's so powerful. And frankly, it's incriminating evidence in a conspiracy case 101. And I'm really looking forward to the presentation of this evidence. Wow, me too. I think it's gonna be fascinating. And and it's 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 it seems that you know, we know we now know that Rose and those guys stood up. They threatened to resign, right? Uh, so they're these are people going to be willing to understand and follow the law. It, it is it is a strange thing when you try to convert. <laughs> I mean, think about it. He literally tried to recruit the top prosecutors in the entire country to be part of a conspiracy. It does seem stupid, right? <laughs> you know, well, it's, it's clearly stupid, but know? it's not crazy. I mean, people use yeah. well, people raise well. Can he raise an insanity defense? The answer is no. I, I yeah. litigated insanity cases. And you have to have, you know, a diagnosable severe mental disease or defect that makes it in that impossible, mentally yeah. impossible for you to understand the difference between right and wrong. Donald Trump is not insane. 
No, uh, it's insane to follow, but that's another thing. So uh, we've talked about a lot, Glenn. This has been fantastic. Any any final things we should think about as we go into the next, and then and not just this Thursday. I mean, we're we're starting to see more evidence build. We 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 know now. We've now heard about a documentarian that bizarrely was allowed to follow the Trumps, uh, which somehow we didn't know about before, which is shocking. Um, where do you think? Uh, what do you think we should think about next, Glenn? You know, I think we should uh, continue to be engaged and push the Department of Justice and push our federal government to move toward accountability for all of these crimes that, you know, we're committed in the harsh light of day in every way we can write letters, call our I know you know, people say I'm sick of calling my representative. I am, too, but I still do it. And, and I say, yeah. listen, I'm a constituent. and Here's what's important to me. Um, I would I would urge people to keep doing it. And then. You know, last election, we we said we've got to vote in numbers too big to rig and too real to steal. And unfortunately, as we mentioned, the state legislatures are trying to you know rework the laws so they can sort of lawfully steal the election from the, the right. people. And right. but I don't think that should dissuade us or, you know, deter us from getting to the polls and even bigger numbers than, you know, than, than the last election, the last presidential election. I think that should remain a focus. And if everybody kind of, you know, engaged in a way they never have before, whether it's, you know, helping somebody register to vote or literally driving your neighbor to the polls on election day, you know, we could do a whole heck of a lot of good if we all kind of stepped out of our comfort zone a little bit and participated in our democracy just a little more. Well, I think that's hits it for me. And that's a theme I've been using. You know, I, I actually argue with Joe Walsh online and, and on the phone. We had a lovely, actually a very nice conversation on the phone where, you know, Joe was saying how he doesn't see these hearings, you know, moving anyone. We're not going to move any of the, the MAGA or none of those. But I, my counter argument is in many ways, we don't necessarily need to move the MAGA, the, the 33% or so of Americans that are really true diehards. What we do need to move is those Americans, our fellow Americans who are sitting on the sidelines, right? The ones who are sort of disengaged from it all. If, if, if we are able to convince, you know, a couple hundred thousand, a million of our fellow Americans who have sort of tuned out of this and now see just how dramatic it was and, and didn't understand what we were facing. I, I, my own, my own daughter, her boyfriend's a great young man. He's a soldier in the United States Army. He was like, I don't think that was a, you know, I don't know what, if it was that big a deal. It just seemed to be a riot. <laughs> you know, if, I, if we can get him to understand that it was much, it's so much more than that, that it wasn't just a riot that day. It was truly a conspiracy to overthrow our government. Then, I, then we win, right? If those people participate, if those people vote, we vote those where we get those votes that vote in larger numbers. You know, I, I think it's a great meme. It's probably inaccurate, but it's, you know, 81 million votes for Biden, 78 million for Trump, 100 million sat it out. Um, it'd be the power of those who are on the sidelines is really the, the secret to the success, I think. So, yeah. so with yeah. all that said, how can we find you online? I mentioned your podcast and your show. Where else can we find you? What's your, what's your Twitter uh, handle, my friend? Yeah, so Twitter handle is Glenn Kirshner 2 I uh, hope to graduate someday to Glenn Kirshner 1. We'll Exciting. see. Exciting. Uh, um, and I think Glenn Kirshner 2 kind of stuck on Instagram. And uh, Justice Matters is my channel over on YouTube. I invite everybody to go check it out and subscribe. It is free. It is always free. And then if anybody really wants to plug into what we're doing uh, here at Justice Matters, they can go over to patreon.com and sign up to become a patron and uh, support our sort of democracy projects that we work. And you get all kinds of behind the scenes stuff. And I send you out stuff in the mail. If you decide you want to more formally support our mission and our efforts and our content, you can go over to patreon.com. 
Love it. Glad to be a part of it. As always, you can always find me on Twitter at FP Wellman. Literally, you can always find me on Twitter. I don't think I sleep. Uh, I'd love you to follow the work we're doing over at the Beer Hall Project to, to fight back at this, 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 the erasure of January 6th, beerhallproject.com and at Beer Hall Project. Uh, as I mentioned at the top of the show, you can find this podcast on Apple and Spotify. Always live right here on Call In. Uh, we'd love you to keep joining us. We'll have more shows. I'm probably going to do another show on Friday because of all the action going on uh, with the January 6th hearings and how important it is to to all of us. Tell your friends about the show if you liked it. I hope you'll give us a great review on Apple especially. And uh, we'll just keep on rocking on. Man, Glenn, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. I know it was short notice. I appreciate you overcoming your, your aversion to technology to, to pull it off. <laughs> My pleasure, Fred. My pleasure. Uh, have a great day. I, I hope to see you on TV soon. And, 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 and thanks, audience, for joining us. And with that, have a great day.